0: Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios, this week on Broadway for Sunday, November 5th, 2023. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist and historian with a number of books. His new book, Brain Teasers for Broadway Geniuses, is now available wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Mastworks Broadway, Broadway Select and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Welcome back from, from Virginia.
1: Indeed. Indeed, yes, where well, they put on my play, Larry, the big-time Broadway producer, and did so well by it. It was so great to see it uh, done so well. You know, I'm going to repeat what I've always said about community theater. It's just amazing how much talent there is there, and there certainly is in Virginia. Um, I was very pleased by this organization, which was so good to me. Matt Moore directing just wonderful job by um, everybody, and um, I think the play works, but we'll see what happens. Well, good to have you back, and I'm,
0: I'm so happy that there was a uh, good success down in Virginia for your play. Thank you. Also, with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at Follow Spot Photo. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So this week we got a uh, press release from the Broadway League saying that Broadway theaters are going to dim the lights in memory of Sheldon Harnick. This uh, light dimming is coming up on Thursday evening, November 9th. So just a couple of days away from now. Uh, I just wanted to follow up on it because we talked about, you know, it is such an incredible large amount of time between... Uh, when the Broadway League has made this announcement and the passing of Mr. Harnick. So uh wanted to follow up and let everybody know that this is happening. Uh, and uh, we look forward to Mr. Harnick getting his the, the honor that he so much deserves. Uh, well, so at least. Yeah. And
2: absolutely. we can speculate as to what, what the <laughs> delay was, but I guess it's
0: fruitless. Right. <laughs> So I, I, I read I read a, a possibility that it's hard to delete, uh, not delete, but uh, dim the lights uh, when in the summer months when it's, you know, so bright out at at the, the time of six forty five in the evening. Uh, oh,
2: good point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I, I don't know if that's the official thing, but we did just uh, pass our. Uh, Back to standard time, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) fall back Mm -hmm. this morning Mm -hmm. and uh, gain an hour. So it will be especially darker at 6.45 p.m. What were you going to say, Peter?
1: Well, um, speaking of Sheldon, um, Ken Bloom has done the collected lyrics of Sheldon Harnick. And he wrote over a thousand songs. And I think that's Mm. coming out in January. So, I mean, the book has taken a long time because a thousand songs, uh, more. So, I mean, it's pretty astonishing to hear that. And, um, Lord knows we'll have a lot of, uh, goodies to, to savor when we look through that book. So I'm looking forward to it. In January.
0: Oh, boy. We're going to have think, to have a, I uh, think, yeah, yeah. we're going to have to have, uh, you, th- that's when you buy the present for yourself that you didn't get in, during the holiday season. <laughs> right. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, that's great. So, talking about a present to ourselves, Michael, you got over to Master Voices to see uh, Sondheim and Bert Shevlov's musical, The Frogs, with an all-star cast, uh, just in a two-day-only presentation. Was it a gift to yourself? It was. It was. And I, I guess, really, it's the
2: Sondheim, Shevlov, Nathan Lane musical. Yeah, because uh, this was uh, a concert version, a condensed concert version of the of the revised uh, version of the show that was done at Lincoln Center Theater. Uh, It had had originally been presented in 1974 at Yale in the swimming pool.
1: I was there. I saw it.
2: (laughs) And believe it or not, a friend of mine, uh, Peter, uh, it was actually my friend Charlie Sullivan, who you saw as Arvide in that Guys and Dolls that we Uh did. uh He went to Yale, and he happened to be there, and he saw it. Uh, Yes. mm,
1: This is the production. Meryl Streep, Sigourney Weaver, um, Christopher Christopher Durang. Durang. Yep, yep. they were all in the cast.
2: All in the chorus. I I haven't looked up uh, lately. Uh, Were the leads, did any of them turn out to be? People, names we
1: would know today i don't think so i mean of course there were some pros i mean larry larry blyden was um the lead but uh anyway it, it, it was a, a real bust because swimming pool uh, gyms do not have good acoustics and it was very very hard to hear what was going on so you got a luckier um experience with the frogs i'm sure
2: Hmm. Yes, actually, somebody the other day who was also there, it's incredible, the number of people who were there in 1974, but they also said they basically could not understand a word. Ah, Uh, So that's unfortunate. Uh, Not the case at the beautiful Rose Theater, um, Jazz at Lincoln Center's beautiful Rose Theater at what I'm told is now called the deutsche bank center used to be the uh, time warner center mm-hmm. in nice. uh, columbus circle and oh. yes uh so it was originally presented there uh not a full musical in 1974 mm-hmm. uh but um you know several songs and some extended sequence musical sequences uh it was really great to see it again uh with a Incredible cast, um, really uh, headed by Douglas Sills in the Nathan Lane role of Dionysus. And then we had um, uh, Kevin Chamberlain as Xanthius and Mark Kudish as Heracles, aka Hercules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chuck Cooper as Karen. Um, Peter Bartlett, who played Pluto in the Lincoln Center production, was back. And I He's just one of my absolute favorites and he was an audience favorite on this occasion. I have to say, um, Dylan Baker, uh, as George Bernard Shaw and Jordan Donica, no less uh, as William Shakespeare getting to sing that beautiful song, fear no more. Uh, we also had Candace Corbin in the small, uh, but pivotal of Ariadne. Um, so that was nice. This, uh, was a very very enjoyable evening um i have to say much more enjoyable than here we are um and other people have agreed with me on that so i'm not alone in in that opinion uh the frogs is not a perfect musical uh, by any means and actually that um Lincoln Center production got mixed reviews as i recall but this was actually uh i would say considerably better than that if only because it was condensed uh it was only about an hour and 45 minutes with no intermission uh one of the problems of the lincoln center one was that a lot of people felt it was too long and was maybe a little bit overwritten Um, but really really funny funny stuff um based very loosely on the comedy by aristophanes uh, you know, with Bert Shevalov on board, of course, I'm sure that a lot, a lot of the humor was there to begin with. Uh, and then Nathan Lane only added more uh when he came aboard. So really, really fun. And and I um I I love the original songs we had as our musical selections last week for our podcast, we had a bit of the title song, and also Fear No More, which is really beautiful. So those are two um, great songs from the original. But then there's the famous um, Invocation and Instructions to the Audience, uh, which, as Douglas Sills reminded me, uh, was originally written for A Funny Thing Happened on the mm-hmm. Way to the Forum, which, of course, was the other Bert Shevolov, uh Steven Sondheim collaboration. Mm-hmm. And this is the song that uh, famously includes uh, s- such instructions to the audience as please don't fart. There's very little air, and this is art. Uh, things like that, <laughs> really, really witty stuff. Um, and this, as I said, was a Dreamcast. Uh, when I interviewed Douglas Sills a-, a couple of days before the show for Talk and Broadway, uh, and we'll send it. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. He said it was an, an a complete joy, mitigated only slightly by the fact that they really don't have quite enough rehearsal time to do it you know a hundred percent as well as they would like and that was evident only in the sense um i mean there were nothing like any major screw-ups or any major disasters at all uh just maybe a slight um the timing was very slightly off in some places but i'm not saying it uh you know, that the the pacing was, was bad or anything like that. And uh for the for the most part, everyone really picked up their cues and there were a lot of laughs from the audience so that proved that they were doing what they were supposed to. Um or orchestrations by Jonathan Tunic, uh fabulously played by a, a full orchestra under Ted Sperling conducting, who also uh, I uh who also directed. Um and uh, the chorus, the master voices, which used to be called the collegiate chorale, is a very large group. Uh, so that was amazing to hear that that kind of sound. Uh, I, I'm not sure of the total number of, of people, but it's a lot. Uh, in fact, um, Rose Hall, Rose Theater, excuse me, uh, can be configured in different ways. But in this case, uh, they have uh, seats... Uh, that are normally filled by audience members in back of the stage and surrounding the stage in the back. Um, in addition to the the regular, all the other seats, of course. Um, and in this case, all of those seats were taken by the chorus. <laughs> um, so there were a whole lot of them, and it just sounded absolutely great. It's not you would never have that large a chorus in a Broadway show, uh, you know, for financial reasons. So. Uh, it really was a completely delightful evening. Douglas and everyone else were fantastic. And I was so glad to get to see it again. And as I said to Douglas, we really have, uh, for at least a, a weekend, we had a almost a mini Sondheim Festival going on, because we have Merrily, we Roll Along, and Sweeney Todd on Broadway. And we have Here We Are Off-Broadway, and then we had The Frogs uh, at the Rose Theater. So... Uh, In addition to, you know, whatever cabaret things might have been going on. Um, So it was really, really terrific. And um, I think it was a wonderful choice uh, on Ted Sperling's part uh, for a show to do with Master Voices.
0: All right. So, uh, very, it sounds like a wonderful production. It's very sad, uh, that we only got two days out of that. But, uh, uh any cameras that you spied? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I,
2: I hope so. Uh, they, uh, I think they normally only do one or two performances of their shows. So they were smart enough to add a third. And I had heard, uh, and Douglas reconfirmed that it was sold out. <laughs> Uh, At least a week in advance. So, you know, Sondheim mania continues.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. May it always. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) All right. So, uh, as Michael mentioned, we have uh, the Talk and Broadway interview uh, linked in the show notes. So if you want to read that interview of Douglas Sills by Michael, we'll have it in the show notes as well. So you can check that out. Peter, you got uh, out to the Paper Mill Playhouse to see a new production of The Great Gatsby. So tell us about this.
1: Yes, um you'd expect that The Great Gatsby which is set in the 20s would have 20s music and it does. 2020s music, not 1920s music. Um Jason Howland has given it not quite a rock score, but music that doesn't remotely sound like the era. Uh, not remotely. And um I'm telling you the drummer is the busiest guy in musical theater because I'm telling you he's boom boom booming um all the time because there's so much um Drumming on backbeats. And um, so, so that was a big failure for me. Uh, The choreography, I think, is truly terrible. Uh, It's uh, herky jerky motions. Again, where's the Charleston? Where's the Black Bottom? You know, where, you know, all that. None none of that. Just people uh, thrusting their heads this way, that way, thrusting their gluteus maximus this way, that way. Um, I, I will say that I am very impressed with the dancers who have learned this choreography because indeed uh, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's like um, there, it's all very asymmetrical. And so my hat is off to the ensemble for learning it. Uh, so that's a problem as well. You know, when you come right down to it, um, the wonderful thing about The Great Gatsby is the way Fitzgerald wrote it. It has one of my favorite descriptions of all time when he talked about the telephone book splashed to the floor. And for those of us who remember telephone books, um, (laughs) especially the heavy ones, I know exactly what he means by that. Devoid of the language, when you come right down to it, this is pretty much a soap opera. I mean, after all, there's um, Tom fooling around with Myrtle, and his wife Daisy isn't happy about it, and she fooled around with Jay Gatsby, and uh, no good can come of this. Um, By the time all is said and done, uh, two three people are dead and um so uh it it really i think is a story that has um passed in terms of sensationalism but i will say this the papal audience gasped um at each death so they didn't know the story and so maybe uh if you don't know the story it 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 strikes you as much more interesting than it did to me (laughs) um Sets and costumes. You know, back in the 90s, um, that was the last great era of paper mill in terms of sets and costumes. Um, I'm telling you, when they did Moriessen and Arthur Coppa's Phantom... Uh, it was it was like when you're at a meal and your host keeps feeding and you and say, "Oh no no no, I can't have another thing. I'm I'm full." It was almost <laughs> that way with sets. I mean, every t- every time you turn around, there was a new set, and it was like, "All right, all right." You know, I mean, it was so strange to have that reaction. I'll grant you. But anyway, um, uh, that's when they had forty thousand subscribers. I don't know what they have now but I know it was down to like 10,000. So um, things got pretty uh, lean over there for a while. I mean, they were doing eight misbehaving baby, you know, small shows on a big stage. But, uh, the money keeps rolling in apparently, and I'm, I hope the subscriptions are up because that's what it seems to be, or I don't know where this money came from, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of money on that stage and it's beautifully done. At least, you know, I mean, you won't, theater tickets, of course, cost an arm and a leg and a kidney today. So as a result, the fact that you have, uh, so much money on stage makes you less, angry that you're spending so much money. So, uh, beautifully, beautifully done with Art Deco sets and terrific costumes, and wonderful project- projections um, projections on the level of Anastasia. If you saw Anastasia, you mm. know how great those projections were. Well, these are on the same level. Uh, might even be the same designer. I haven't checked, but I mean, it's, you don't miss the drops, the canvas drops of the wooden scenery. Um, th- there's some of that on stage, by the way, but nevertheless, a lot of projections and they're glorious, glorious. It looks wonderful. I think Jeremy Jordan is too callow to play Jay Gatsby. And frankly, um, I had a contretemps with a reader who, um, disagreed with me on how the show started, but she went to see it long before I did. So maybe it's been changed, but I swear that when the curtain went up, uh, there was Gatsby in this white suit with his back to us, and Jeremy turned around, and, um, he just seems a little too young to me. Um, he doesn't have the gravitas, and, um, uh, that's a, that's a problem for me. Um, he, and, but what I really object to is the fact I checked, F. Scott Fitzgerald has 60 pages, 60, 60s girls, 60 before he brings in Jay Ass <laughs> to me. 60. And here he is right away. And I'm telling you, there's so much talk about Jay Gatsby that um, in, in the novel and in that 74 movie, which I think is underrated. I think because a lot was expected of it with Mia Farrow and Robert Redford. But the point is that um, you're saying, who is he? Who is he? For those of you who saw Passion way back um, in the 90s, the Stephen Sondheim musical, you may recall how much talk there was about Fosca and how you, know, you heard her screaming. And by the time she came down the stairs, I mean, you couldn't wait to see who this person was. Same type of thing with Gatsby. He should be saved for us, you know, so. Um, so, but really, what really bothered me was the music because um, we have a lot of melismas, you know, nobody says so, but they sing so, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> a lot of held notes to show how great the singers are. Again, Paper audience loved it, loved it. Michael Kunza, who did Dance of the Vampires, said to me, people don't want to hear it period music anymore. They don't want to hear it. They're used to hearing rock music. They don't care what time uh, era show is in. They just want to hear rock music. That's all there is to it. And um, this seemed to prove his point, uh, because the music has nothing to do with the 20s, as I've said a million times already, and will again, I'll go to my grave saying it. But um, And, you know, they might have said, Well, you know, we want to bring it into the 21st century. Um, Period music has been done to death. Let's take a new stance on both the choreography and um, on the music. You know, it, um, it, it looks so trite. But, you know, an anachronism is an anachronism is an anachronism. It just is. If you were watching Camelot and Arthur looked at his Rolex watch, you would think that's a mistake. If in Jesus Christ Superstar, Jesus checked into a Holiday Inn, you would think that was a mistake. Well, I think that music should abide by the same rules. I think it should sound like the era that it's supposed to be in. Um, I remember a big argument with Carl Lockhart, who is one of our faithful listeners, or at least has been, um, about uh, Camelot saying the music sounds right to me. And he says, no, 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 no. That music doesn't sound anything like the era. And it probably doesn't, but it sounded right to me. This sounds all wrong to me, and that's the problem with it. Ava Noblezada, fine, does the job. Um, Noah Ricketts is uh, Nick, the narrator, essentially. Fine, does the job. Uh, really very good, though, very good indeed, is um, the actress who's playing um uh Jordan Baker. Now, Jordan is uh, somebody who uh, is a friend of Daisy's, and um, she uh, is a a, a very successful woman on her own. And um, you have to really appreciate the fact that here's a woman who is not just um, somebody who uh, is um, a wife. You know, she has much more um, very much going for her. And, um, it really is extraordinarily impressive to see her come out with all these dry martini type, um, things. Um, she, she really has a great delivery. She has the lines too. I mean, really, but, um, her delivery is great. And her name is Samantha Pauly and she is, she shoots up one sardonic whip after another. It really is very, very impressive. Um, Kate Kerrigan did the book. And um, she engages in some anachronisms, too. I mean, she has one character judge others on a 10 scale. He's a 5. He's a 4. I don't (laughs) think that was happening in the 20s. That sounds wrong to me. So uh, I think that came much later in the century. So um, also, um, I checked. I mean, The Great Gatsby is online. That's how I found out that uh, the entire book. And that's how I found out that Gatsby doesn't come in until page 16. But the word asshole doesn't appear in uh, The Great Gatsby's novel, but it appears twice here. And I don't know if people were that frank um, in that time. Maybe they were, but um, uh, it's not in the novel, but she's added that. So um, Nathan Tyson's lyrics are fine. Um, I I have to admit that um, I was curious about a song where um, Daisy was singing, I'm so sophisticated. And I thought, well, you know, people who are sophisticated really don't project that they don't announce that they don't uh, foist it on you it's in the novel so he's well within his rights to do it that way um very throughable, you know for all my objections um mostly because of the eye candy but um i i don't know what the future is for this show um i wish it well even though i've made so many statements against it here um i don't know if it'll come in um uh, I imagine there's, there's a theater available for it. It would seem that there is, um, with so many things closing. But we shall see what we shall see. But um, uh, I, I wish I could be more enthusiastic, but I can't.
0: Hmm. All right. So that is The Great Gatsby at Paper Mo Playhouse. It is uh, playing through November 12th. Uh, and we'll see if we see it again. Um I've known Jason Howland for, for many, many years. Uh, and he was sort of a protege of Frank Wildhorn. Wildhorn, indeed, yes. Uh, yeah. and, and I feel like I always hear like this Frank Wildhorn sort of influence coming through Jason's work. Uh, how and, could it not? You know, yeah. You know, so, and so,
2: uh, uh, and certainly you know, Frank was not known for writing, period,
0: uh, yeah. respectful music, uh, mm-hmm. uh, in, you, not in general. You, not, you, you know, know Jekyll and, Hyde and uh and Scarlett Primpernell and things like that were sort of uh, modern-sounding music in throwback With some time.
2: exceptions, yes.
0: Yeah, exactly. And there we are back to Doug Sills. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> all roads lead. <laughs> Everything leads to Doug Sills. So, that's The Great Gatsby of Paper Mill Playhouse, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael and Peter both uh, got down to Classic Stage Company on 13th Street to see I Can Get It For You, Wholesale." So, uh, Michael, why don't you get us started on this? Well, I might start by saying... uh taking
2: a cue from peter's remarks about the anachronisms in great gatsby uh and another thing that he didn't mention and i understand why is the diversity of the casting uh you know it's very dicey to discuss this but uh i guess it applies also to i can get it for you wholesale uh in the case of the great gatsby uh i mean a I haven't read that novel since I, I was really too young when I read it. I think I read it in junior high school. Mm-hmm. I should really <laughs> go mm-hmm. back to it again, but it, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Almost all of the characters are supposed to be very rich people uh, living on Long Island in the twenties. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, there would not, in re- any realistic form, be all the diversity uh, that you have here. Uh, and I can get it for you. Wholesale is very, very specifically about Jewish people working in the garment district in the 1930s. And uh, you have the the same case here. And I'm not only talking about uh, performers of color. Uh, uh, there also seem to, to be several uh actors in this show who looked very irish to me uh, and um santino fontana is an interesting case because i i, I don't believe he's jewish uh, i think he's italian american uh but he uh was believably uh cast in the role in terms of his speech and just the way he came across he was believable to me as a jew so for whatever that's worth i'll i'll, I'll start there um This show, I went in, I wouldn't say cold, but I would say I went in lukewarm, and I don't mean in terms of not liking it very much, but just my knowledge of the show. I have the album, the cast album, and I've had it for years, but I don't think I ever even went as far as actually sitting down and reading the very detailed synopsis um of the plot in contained in the album and, and, you know, matching it with the songs while listening along. Uh, I really only know it, uh, for a couple of the songs, of course, the terrific comedy number, Miss Marmelstein, uh, which helped to catapult Barbara Streisand to Broadway stardom and eventually much, much greater stardom after that. Um, And also, uh, there is a song, a really terrific song called A Funny Thing Happened, uh, that I really like. It's performed on the original cast album by Marilyn Cooper and Elliot Gould in the lead role of Harry Bogan. Um, and then, uh, there is a song called Have I Told You Lately, which I uh, initially knew because it's on Tony Bennett's, I, left my heart in San Francisco album. Cause as I've made the point several times before, Tony Bennett recorded hundreds, maybe thousands of Broadway songs, um, in his career. And that, that was one of them. And he sings it a lot better than I have to say than Ken Leroy does on the original cast album, Ken Leroy, who was the original Bernardo in West side story. Um, so anyway, that, that's all background here. Um, this is the story of Harry Bogan, who works in the garment district initially in a very low level position. And then he winds up um, scheming and conniving and uh, just, you know, traitoring his way uh, betraying his way to become very, very rich. Um, It's interesting that this show is being done um, as pal. Joey uh, is being done at Mm -hmm uh city center because uh, i haven't seen that show yet <laughs> and uh word is very very bad I'm, I'm going this afternoon so i'll report next week uh and it's also people are calling it not pal joey because apparently it's been so completely rewritten and reconceived but one thing it still has if i understand correctly is that the lead the leading man is very very much an anti-hero uh to put it mildly, and same with Harry Bogan—they're awful, awful people, um, who just do what they can to get ahead, and it's interesting to see that. Um, and many people, I guess, maybe, or some people, say that that's why initially I can get it, it for your wholesale was not a big hit on Broadway. Um, it was based on a a a, a novel, and you can do that maybe more easily in a. A novel than in a show anyway um in terms of uh harry's character uh, uh oh well, this production um was rewritten to a certain extent by John Weidman, the son of jerome weidman who uh, who was the original author of the original book and the uh, libretto for the musical and john Weidman, of course we we know uh from his work with Stephen Sondheim on assassins and uh, um, Pacific Overtures. Thank you, yes. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, So, that's an interesting thing that's happened here that The Sun has rewritten uh, to a certain extent, the musical. And again, I I don't know the original that well, so I can't uh, uh, detail for you all the changes that have been made. One interesting thing, and maybe not necessarily a good idea, is uh, they added a a little sort of a almost a flashback thing at the beginning where we see a Santino Fontana as the uh adult Harry uh watching himself working in the garment district as a very young man and being um very intimidated and bullied and uh uh even called a kike by someone at one point. So there's very much anti-Semitism is is uh, a part of this from the beginning uh, from this production anyway. And I guess that they added that to show us maybe why Harry turned out to be such a bastard. Um, So that's an interesting thing that they did. Uh, I'm not sure if it necessarily uh, works or, or was necessary. Um, But, uh, uh, oh, and here's another thing. Harry is, um, portrayed in such a bad light that you could look at this um as kind of underlining the worst possible stereotypes of Jews as you know uh, they have been portrayed in the past uh and uh, you know peter can certainly speak to this in terms of his uh play that he wrote about the moneylender of mm-hmm. uh, Venice, um, as well, uh, uh, let's say money-grubbing monsters. So that is how uh, Harry Bogan is portrayed. But the thing is here, that the extreme mitigation factor uh, in this case, is that all of the other characters, almost all the other characters, are Jews as well, and they're all portrayed as decent people. So I guess that makes it okay to show that Harry is just really this horrible, horrible person and um one very effective thing in this production i thought is that uh um the final scene is everyone sitting down uh to a very obviously traditional jewish dinner and at that point harry is excluded from the gathering and i guess theoretically from the community uh and that was a very powerful ending that i don't think is the way the original version ends. So I think there was a lot of very smart, uh, things done here in terms of the rewriting and, um, the direction by Trip Coleman and the cast is very strong. Um, Santino is maybe perfect casting for Harry Bogan because he has such innate charm, uh, in himself as a performer that, uh, Maybe we can at least relate to the character and not reject him out of hand, because uh, there's no fun in, in I guess, watching somebody who's clearly a a, a piece of shit, <laughs> um, mm. you know, d- uh, for two hours uh, just do horrible things. If you can understand why people like him and don't realize what a bastard he is, then that that makes for a much more interesting. Um, show uh other really other lots of other good people in the show including adam chandler barrett um and uh it i think it was very well done uh in terms of the staging at csc uh so it's it's absolutely very very well worth seeing oh um one musical note i i thought um that the small orchestra sounded good for the most part, except they didn't have a drummer. Uh, And, you know, interesting, because Peter just singled out the drummer in Mm -hmm. Great Gatsby. Uh, They didn't have a drummer here. And I, I, I think that's a really, really bad choice in almost any Broadway score. So if I were them, I would add a drummer, even if it meant that they had to get rid of one or two other instruments because they didn't have enough room uh the orchestra was placed on a platform above the action uh sort of in the, against the back wall um so that's my report on i can get it for you wholesale
0: really glad to see it mm, could have been that the drummer spontaneously combust <laughs> <laughs> oh and i forgot
2: to mention harold rome uh, wrote the music and the lyrics and he is maybe an underappreciated mm-hmm. Uh, talent. So I'm so bad on me for not mentioning him to begin with. Uh, but yes, Harold Rome, uh, who also wrote Fanny and Wish You Were Here. Uh, really, really talented, uh, writer for the
0: musical theater. Fanny. I haven't thought about Fanny in years. Mm.
1: Love Fanny.
0: All right. So Peter, what did you think about, uh, I can get it for you wholesale?
1: Well, uh, I have a very different history with the show, uh, from the one that Michael has because (laughs) I actually saw the pre Broadway tryout at the Colonial Theater in Boston on March 10th, 1962. It was my first pre Broadway tryout and I came out Mm. raving about this Barbara Streisand, uh, how (laughs) she was. Um, it's always been a tough show. Frankly, it's a little better here from the vantage point of Santino Fontana, who Mm -hmm. has a charm that Elliot Gould did not have. It was definitely a performance that was supposed to be tough, tough as nails from the word go, Santino here um, narrates the show and he gets us to like him at the beginning. So what it really becomes is a story, a morality tale about a a good guy going wrong. Um, So that makes it a little better, but it's still a very, very hard pill to swallow. Very hard indeed. And it's really a shame that um, there's no way out of the situation because uh, this is what Um, Harry is, and that's all there is to it. The scene that um, Michael talked about at the beginning where he was a kid, yes, uh, that's new. And, um, I, I don't know if we're going to remember it as the show goes on, but nevertheless, um, it's there and I think it was a, a good idea. I think, I think John Wyden has done a very good job of, uh, doing the best he can mm. with his daddy's material, uh, because it'll never be, a, a, a lovely happy-go-lucky show. Now, a lot of people have mentioned the fact that this show opened only a few months after how to succeed in business without really trying, which indeed also has a guy who wants to climb to the top. But Finch is funny. And the type of thin uh, lives that Finch tells, um, are very benign. Uh, for example, uh, there he is walking into the office and there's Mr. Bigley and they slam into each other. So later when he goes to apply for a job, he said, I just bumped into Mr. Bigley. Well, that's true, you know, but he makes it sound like, uh, that he knows him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that's endearing. You know, I mean, we, we all wish that we had that type of ability to come up with something like that, that is uh, a white lie. You know, Harry's lies, which get a gasp from the audience um, towards the end of the show, a gasp. And believe me, I still remember that gasp when sixteen hundred and forty six people at the Colonial heard that line. Um, So, yeah, he's he's definitely become an evil guy and he won't take responsibility, so it's a very, very hard thing to do. That said, Harold Rome was the perfect guy to write this show because he wrote a lot of Jewish shows. Wish You Were Here um, certainly um, is about the Catskills and Jews who go up to the Catskills um, during that period of time in the 50s when everybody was going there, when there was no air conditioning. Pins and Needles <laughs> had a number of Jewish characters in it. <clears throat> so um, so he's very, very skillful at writing for, um, for Jews. Uh, he knows the territory, and it's a one Wonderful score! I was very amused um, to hear. Um, Have I told you lately the song that Michael mentioned? Because for years I thought that uh, when I heard the line, um, "Have I told you lately that yours truly loves you?" Um, this truly was this cute little um, Yiddishism that um, I didn't know about, um, having a Gentile background. And it was many years later before I realized he was singing. Have I told you lately that yours truly? Loves you. It's not yours truly, yours truly. So, um, and I was reminded of that yesterday. There are so many wonderful things in the show. I mean, it's really something that here's the mother originally played by Lillian Roth. And I dare say that Harold Rome wrote for her because she was very famous as an alcoholic, wrote a book about it. There was a movie about it called I'll Cry Tomorrow. And there's a lyric, You May Have Tears Tomorrow in uh, the song Too Soon. Too Soon is a very smart song, very smart because here's the mother. Telling this girl who's desperately at Ruthie, who's desperately in love with Harry, much too much so, and he he wants no part of her i mean he he likes her as a friend and he'll certainly take money from her when he needs it, but nevertheless, it's not going to be a romance um for those who might worry that he might be a closeted gay, no, he has a very good time with Martha mills um as time <laughs> goes on, so uh no he's he's quite um butch but 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 but, um, he does take advantage of Ruthie, and it's so wonderful that Harry's mother is the one who sings to her, too soon, don't give your heart away. You know, I, I, watch out for my son is, is part of it. It's part of the subtext. By the way, too soon, don't give your heart away, as opposed to don't give your heart away too soon, because that is a Jewish, um, hmm cliche, maybe, or uh, custom. I don't know. Um, In fact, the song that's been dropped that used to open the show, I'm Not a Well Man, um, Time I Haven't Got, you know, as right. opposed to I haven't got time, you know, yeah. so um, it, it, Harrow knows that territory really well. And uh, th- don't forget, this story takes place in the Garment District and Pins and Needles started as a, just an amateur show in the Garment District. And so, yeah, it, again, you really get the impression he knows what's going on. Um, the music has a wonderful Semitic feeling, just wonderful. And um, there's a song at a bar mitzvah called A Gift Today in a Minor Key that really um, is exactly right for what it should. There's a song where everybody celebrates getting to know each other called the family way which certainly has a very um uh, semitic melody so really um the score is top notch but you really feel bad that this guy that you get invested in because he's talking to at the beginning and he has such charm is going to turn out to be such a stinker in the end and he doesn't apologize at the end he just has a way of saying yeah this is the way life is yeah. You know, mm-hmm. So, um, you want a happy ending? Go go read a fairy tale. He's a line, something like that. And um, yeah, you, you, it's impossible to forgive him. Um, in terms of the Jewishism, let's remember that Jerome Weidman wrote the novel. So at least that. You know, and um, so we do have a Jew writing about Jews. You know, it would be terrible if indeed um, this were a Gentile writer uh, making right. Jews seem craven. So at least that. Um, but I'll tell you, the audience liked it quite a bit. And um, I I have to think that that has a lot to do uh, with the performances. Rebecca Naomi Jones is so good at um, at portraying Ruthie, the, the woman who is desperately in love with him and wises up. Um, In that song that Michael alluded to earlier, Uh, Judy Kuhn is wonderful as the mother. Oh, a a very clever thing that um, almost works. Um, I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but at the beginning of the show, um, the mother sings to him, eat a little something, Um, sit down and eat. Mm -hmm. And what happens, what's always happened at the end of the show, she sang that song. And I wish that it had been done completely at the end of the show. It's it's interrupted at the end of the show. And I want to hear the whole thing. Because at the beginning, she's just saying, eat a little something the way a mother says, eat a little something. And at the end of the show, the subtext is so incredible when she's saying, eat a little something, meaning I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to deal with you. You're horrible. You've disgraced me. You've disgraced yourself. You've betrayed your friends, et cetera, et cetera. And I wish the song had been done to completion. Um, and there is that very powerful line in the middle of it that your mother made this food just like she made you. And um boy, you know, that's quite powerful. So there's a lot of tough stuff in the show. Tough stuff, no question. Um, worth seeing, very well directed by Trip Coleman, secure, sure handed, mm-hmm. I'm telling you marvelous couldn't be done any better than he's done it and and it's done in a very small space with uh, very few props and virtually no scenery really no scenery when you come right down to it but nevertheless you know i mean <laughs> you know what mistake they may have made in the lobby they have a replication of an ad when the show went on tour with Lillian roth and larry Kurt playing um um harry so it's at the O'Keeffe center in toronto <laughs> and they have the prices And you could actually (laughs) go to the balcony, (laughs) and the front balcony was a dollar fifty, and the back balcony was a dollar. You know, I'm not sure that's so wise to put uh, (laughs) to remind us. You know, as my great friend Ruth Leppe used to say. The old songs are coming back. Why can't the old prices come back too? Well, anyway, they can't and they don't. And, uh, but anyway, it's very fitting that there should be a song called The Sound of Money in this show because indeed, um, money is certainly, uh, relevant to the show and to ticket prices. But anyway,
2: I like to second. Uh, peters praise of rebecca naomi jones i'm sorry i didn't mention her i thought she was really terrific and i was really glad to see it because i thought she was done dirty in oklahoma by the director and the musical director uh but here she's just fantastic and um you almost wouldn't believe it was the same person if you had only seen her in oklahoma so uh but the but the whole cast here is really strong judy kuhn I don't think she's ever sounded better. I, is it possible her voice has gotten better?
1: <laughs> Isn't that something? Isn't it sounds so
2: so rich and beautiful, doesn't it? Uh, I yeah. mean, really, really, really great. Uh, Peter, uh, Some just some very quick questions here. Um, uh, have I told you lately, it's interesting you mentioned that specific thing, because on the album, uh, on the original cast album, Ken LaRoy Sings, and on the tony bennett recording he sings have i told you lately how much your husband loves you
1: um, uh huh. yeah frankly it's at the end of the song they both sing it oh okay so um, first yeah. he
2: first he sings yeah, how husband. much your husband and then they sing yeah. how much always, yours truly, truly loves yeah, you yeah
1: yeah yeah
2: <laughs> also um do you remember if I, I i i didn't like um the fact that in act 2 there are two brief reprises of Have I Told You Lately, sung by Harry. Do you remember if those were in the original? I
1: don't think they were. Yeah, I don't Um, think so either. I'm I'm almost 100% certain they were. You know, the thing is, Back in those days when I was seeing eight shows a year, every one of them was an event. And <laughs> so I, my recollection of shows of that era is so much better than what I saw last night. Um, <laughs> because, uh, you know, I, I counted the days like a kid till Christmas before I could go and all that that kind of business. So I, mean, I remember where people were standing on the stage. Uh, it, they really... Um, I, I had a photographic memory then for for what was going on. So I dare say... And by the way, also... I saw it rather close to the um, the album being released, because I, I remember I saw it on March 10th, 1962. It opened March 22nd, and in those days, they got the albums out fast. Right. So I'm sure they recorded it on the following Sunday, and it was out um, a week from Tuesday. And believe me, uh, again, I was counting the days like a kid till Christmas for that album to come out, because I wanted to hear that Miss C number. Um, that was very important to me. So, um, So I don't think so at all at all at and all. you
2: and then you probably remember this i'm i'm assuming that the original did not end the way this one does with everyone except harry sitting down to dinner and him being excluded
1: much better here. Mm, yeah, um, I'm sorry to say that what happens in the original is that Ruthie takes him back. Right. Yes.
2: I, that's what it says in the notes on the cast album. And I was like, yeah. Oh really? Gosh. Yeah. Mm.
1: yeah even mm. at 16, 15, I was 15, even at 15 years old, I was saying, no, 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 no. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, really, I thought that was horrifying. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one thing I should add too, because I haven't made this clear, but the saving grace has always tried to be in this show that he loves his mother. And he's very good to his mother, and that's supposed to be something that makes us say, "Well, he isn't a total skunk you know right. but but you know I mean, um considering the fact that he's terrible to to other people, and it's very smart the orchestration of character that he has two partners. And one is blindly loyal to him and he'll pay for that. And the other one is suspicious and, um, it really tries to get to the bottom of things. And believe me, there's a lot of bottom here. So, uh, <laughs> so there you have it.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. That is I can get it for your wholesale at the classic Sage company. It's running through December 17th and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Peter, uh, just as, uh, when you say Beetlejuice three times, you invoke the name uh and uh bring up the spirit of it, you invoke the name of Barbara Streisand. Uh and uh I wanted to mention that uh her new audiobook has been released. My name oh, is Barbara. Yeah. Mm, and right. uh if you want to spend forty eight hours and fifteen minutes with Barbara <laughs> talking to you, you can uh get this audiobook over at Audible and I have a link to that in the show notes. So my name is Barbara Barbara Streisand an audio book with narrated by barbara so um has the
2: audiobook been released before
0: the print edition i don't know uh i don't know Uh, let's see um i hadn't heard a lot of people
2: talking about it yet and i i didn't think it was yet but maybe they're doing that that
0: would be interesting when do you know when the book is coming out let's see if i can find that quickly uh my name is barbara this is november 7th so in 2 days
2: yeah i th- i actually i had that date in my head but i wasn't sure about it if i remembered it
0: correctly yeah so
2: almost simultaneous yeah. release
0: <laughs> yeah maybe the audiobook is not quite out yet maybe i maybe... mean
2: oh okay i thought yeah i thought you were making that specific point
0: no i you know I I have seen a bunch of reviews of it so I thought it was out but maybe it, it, oh, doesn't maybe, look it's, like it maybe, maybe it's not reviewers yet. Cop, maybe reviewers caught maybe reviewers exactly copies. yeah yeah re, re, yeah it must be because it's uh doesn't seem to be uh it's going to be released the same day also tuesday yeah so all right uh we are run a little bit late but peter let's get these uh, in quickly uh peter and michael uh Peter, you saw the new group's production of Sabbath's Theater at the uh, Signature uh, here in New York. So give us a quick review on that.
1: This is pretty ugly, too, um, because there's a great deal of description of sex acts that uh, many people um, will never try and hope to never try. And some people have tried, I'll grant you. But nevertheless, um, it's a pretty raunchy show. John Turturro is magnificent as Sabbath, the guy who is a director, who is a puppeteer, but he's got arthritis and times are tough. The love of his life has died; um, he's very upset about it, and um, he's going to find his happiness wherever he can find it. Um, but it's pretty ugly stuff, and uh, all things considered uh you have to see it for him uh, elizabeth marble is a marble um she knows uh she lives up to her surname and um playing a lot of women uh, in in the life uh, so uh really uh galvanizing for him who gives his all uh even to the point where he gets total frontal nudity um so uh it's it's a very impressive performance but a very ugly play
0: all right. And also, uh, you got to see the Gingle theatrical group's Arms and the Man at Theatre Row. So tell us about that.
1: Terrific. Um, frankly, I have a long history with Arms and the Man. The first time I ever saw it, um, I was entranced by this uh, actress who played Luca, the servant. Um, uh, Susan Channing was her name then. Stalker Channing is her name now. Mm. And I uh, became an immediate fan. Here, Delphi Boric plays the part, and she is terrific. Um, uh, really, uh, the equal of uh, Susan Channing back then. But this is a wonderful production. Very, very effective uh, performances by Karen Ember, as you'd expect, and Thomas J. Ryan, as you'd expect, playing a husband and wife who certainly have their issues. Um, they also have a daughter, and the daughter may be falling in love with the wrong guy. Uh, that sounds pretty familiar, but don't forget this is a George Bernard Shaw play from way back when. So, um, but um, she uh, she's engaged to a guy who uh, really is um, a, a, a terribly uh, puffed up uh self-important uh, you can't believe how lucky you are to have me as uh, your prospective son-in-law wonderfully played by Ben Davis and Kishav Mudliar is Blunchy the, the chocolate soldier so to speak um, who comes in and he doesn't have weapons he has chocolate in his pocket because he needs it for the energy and he likes chocolate So uh, that, so who is she going to wind up with I think you may know in advance who she's going to wind up with but nevertheless a terrific production very simply designed by Lindsay genevieve fuori but i'm telling you very nicely designed a a very pretty set to look at simple but pretty so um so i recommend arms in the Man, uh which of course um is part of the mission that um david staller who directed has had to resuscitate the plays of um george bernard shaw Next up, he tells me The Devil's Disciple, which, ironically enough, uh, <laughs> takes place in America. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to that already.
0: Okay. Uh, Michael, you saw Leah Michelle over at Carnegie Hall. How was your uh, evening at this concert?
2: Well, uh, I'll try to be brief. Um, as I'm sure many of our listeners remember, sometime uh, during the pandemic, I think early on, um, there was a huge outcry against leah michelle uh because it came out uh that there was all this alleged horrible behavior uh by her towards several of her colleagues over the years and um it looked for a while like uh that might be the end of her career um but i think it was lucky for her that it happened during the shutdown, um, and people have short memories. And then, uh, it seems as though, uh, that she has been rehabilitated or her reputation has been rehabilitated. Certainly, um, after her. Critically praised run in Funny Girl, uh, taking over the role in the revival that originally went to Beanie Feldstein, even though, uh, Leah had been talked about for a revival of Funny Girl for quite some time before that. And then it didn't happen. And then it did, uh, when Beanie Feldstein's, uh, run was abbreviated because of poor critical reception. Anyway, um, I mention all that because, uh, this, performance was done in the style of leah really retracing her career and there was a lot of patter about her quote-unquote journey uh she used that word several times and i just i just don't like that (laughs) word i'm sorry (laughs) and it i have to say and it seemed uh very self-indulgent in that way uh as a friend of mine pointed out well that's exactly what her fans wanted um, so you, uh, you can't fault her in that sense. But because there was so much patter, and she spent so much time talking about um, – uh, a lot of time talking about what she had learned from her colleagues. Apparently, she became very close to several people when she did Ragtime uh, when she was just a, a young, very young girl. Mm-hmm. And she became very close with Audra McDonald and Brian Stokes Mitchell and Marin Mazie. She mentioned Marin, uh very specifically as someone who uh really helped her. But she kept talking about how she learned professionalism from these people. And then I and and that made me not able to stop thinking about all of the things that I had read about the behavior that she supposedly exhibited towards. So uh you know, I mean we can't go I, I don't think we can go to every show and think about uh you know, the personal lives and the politics and the behavior of the of the people we're seeing, because that seems kind of silly. Uh and, you know, there's lots of people who we would never be able to enjoy if we did that. Uh, you know, from Frank Sinatra to Barbara Streisand and maybe a lot of other people. Um uh, so uh but I only mentioned it in this case because that's the way it was set up as this recreation of her career. And there was so much patter about All of that. Anyway, um, the other negative thing I would say is that Leah opened with Don't Rain on My Parade, and she did, in fact, sing it Walking Down the Aisle at Carnegie Hall, just as she sang it Walking Down the Aisle at Radio City Music Hall at the Tonys years ago when she was campaigning to get the role originally of uh, Fanny Brice in the revival. Um, And then uh, towards the end of the show, she did a medley of... Uh, I'm the greatest star, into people, into the music that makes me dance, into my man. And in all of those cases, it seemed like she really was aping Streisand's inflections and interpretations down to the last 16th note. Uh, you know uh, and I guess I can understand why she did her interpretations from the movie by the way Uh, Barbara's Mm -hmm. recordings for the movie Mm -hmm. not for the original cast album because Leah grew up on the movie and the Mm -hmm. movie soundtrack album Um, so again uh, I guess I understand why she does that but I don't think it really reflects very well on her um so other than that uh when she was singing non streisand songs um she was really fantastic her voice was in phenomenal shape um she has a way of singing uh, belting high notes that is really exciting but without being uh, blaring and annoying uh and uh she looked fantastic and i think uh that the audience everyone there. Basically was in the palm of her hand, so other than after don't rain on my parade she sang. Uh, Broadway Baby. She did I Dreamed a Dream, Gliding from Ragtime. Um, then she mentioned that her audition song for Spring Awakening was I Don't Know How to Love Him. So she sang that into Mama Who Bore Me from that score. And then Jonathan Groff came up on stage, uh, literally from the audience. He said he didn't want to sit in, back and watch it on a monitor uh because he wanted it just experience it from out front. So he came up on stage and she surprised him. Leah surprised him by singing old friend or old friends, uh, a little bit of it from Merrily. We roll along. He really seemed surprised by that. And then together they did word of my body, uh, from spring awakening into somewhere, uh, from West Side Story. I'm not sure what the connection was there. Um, then Leah took a, a pee break, as Jonathan referred to it uh, several times, uh, and while he sang She'll Be Back, uh, which was. You'll be back from mm-hmm. Hamilton with with mm-hmm. special lyrics. I'm not sure who wrote them. Maybe he did. They were really, really funny. Uh, then there were Glee, uh, several songs from Glee, uh, uh, as suggested by the audience. She sang uh, some of them a cappella for a few of the measures. Um, Being good isn't good enough. Wow. From Hallelujah Baby, which I believe she said was included in Glee at some point um happy days are here again papa can you hear me uh maybe this time which i have to say also seemed a little too close to liza's inflections from the movie um then darren chris came on uh, another glee alum and they uh, Le- leah and he did suddenly see more together and then the song to make you feel my love which is an adele song uh that was followed by the um Uh, funny girl mini medley that i just mentioned uh and then uh leah had the guts or the nerve (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. to use as her encore over the rainbow which uh was very famously sung uh by (laughs) judy carlin in her concert at carnegie hall which is considered one of the greatest moments in one of the greatest nights in showbiz history, but that did not deter Leah from singing over the rainbow. Um, So that was
0: my experience of Leah Michelle at Carnegie Hall. Okay. And that was a one night only thing. And we'll have a link back to the Carnegie Hall website with the information. Uh, Peter, to wrap up this morning, um, you got over to here (laughs) to
1: see King of the Jews.
0: So how was
1: it? Uncomfortable chairs. Um mm. that uh let me bring that up uh, right away because this is not a short show. Uh it's um 2 hours. Uh, And sitting on those chairs is uh, a tough experience. Also, um, you're essentially in a nightclub, so there's no raked uh, situation at all. So if you're in the last row, which is only about the third row, but if you're in the last row, as I was, uh, because it's general admission, um, you're going to see very little. Okay, so that aside, House King of the Jews, I have to say it reminded me of a Lillian Hellman play called Montserrat. Uh, in which indeed, um, we're dealing with a tough time in history where indeed, um, people are going to be persecuted simply because of who they are. And, um, so all these Jewish people are very, very, uh, scared about, um, what's happening to them and they are offered the chance to go to Madagascar. And what happens there isn't so hard either. Daniel Oreskes is excellent as a smarmy guy who keeps on telling these people they have nothing to worry about. He's from the opposition, and boy, do they have something to worry about. But he always makes it sound like what's going on is simple bureaucracy. I mean, that's all there is to it. So... um. So while it's not as good as Montserrat, it does cover the same type of territory, and it does have its power. So um, if indeed you um, bring a cushion, I think you'll have a good time. Um, well, a good time, I don't know if you'll have a good time per se, but you mm-hmm. will appreciate the skill that goes into King of the Jews.
0: Okay, and that's uh, running through November 18th at here, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to our musical moments and our brain teaser, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of com. There's a subscribe link that way. Each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcast for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. You can uh, subscribe to us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So that's patreon.com slash Broadway Radio. And you can subscribe there and get our shows early and support all of the shows uh, that Broadway Radio has to offer. Uh, you can also listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Pandora, Google Play, YouTube Music, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an
1: answer to last week's Brain Teaser? What do these Tony winning performers have in common? Maria Karnilva, John Cullum, Richard Kiley, and Rex Harrison. Well, all repeated their Tony-winning roles in Broadway revivals. Maria Karnilova in Fiddler in 1981, John Cullum in Shenandoah in 1989, Richard Kiley in Man of La Mancha in 1972 and 1977, and Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady in 1981. Josh Israel was the first to get it, followed by Paul Witte, Brigadude, Ingrid Gammerman, Tony Janicki, and Juliette Green. This week's question... This is sounds far more complicated than it is really. This, this is a reasonably easy question. This illustrious songwriter saw his final Broadway musical open in the fifties, just two days before an illustrious composer saw the closing of a musical to which he'd contribute melodies. The name of the last song in the first songwriter's just open show rhymes with the title of the second composer's last Broadway musical. Who are the songwriters, the musicals in question, and the rhyming titles of the songs?
0: Okay. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, tell us what's uh, up in the musical moment.
2: Well, as we mentioned earlier, uh, this week... Uh, city center is presenting what they're calling pal joey uh, but apparently it is so vastly and completely and totally rewritten and reconceived that everyone else is calling it not pal joey Um, the response has been very very poor overall to say the least i'm seeing it uh, this afternoon, as I mentioned, so I'll, I'll maybe I'll report next week. Uh, but the acute irony here <laughs> is that back in 1995, uh, City Center presented as part of its Encore series um, something that was a uh, uh, well a presentation of Pal Joey that was uh, much much closer, much much closer to its original form, uh, and that was a really big hit with Peter Gallagher in the title role and Patti Lapone as Vera Simpson. Uh, so I was reminded of how good that production was when I started hearing um, such unfortunate things about this one. And I remembered that that was back in the day when a lot of the Encores productions were recorded. Uh, so I do indeed have the album and I pulled it out and listened to it again. And it's absolutely fantastic. Uh with those two, plus BB Newworth, uh and a generally generally great cast across the board, and Rob Fisher uh conducting the what used to be called the the Encores Orchestra. So um our musical moment moments for this uh podcast, the uh is the overture uh from that recording. Of Pal Joey, so the opener is the beginning of the overture, and the closer is the uh, is the end of it. And um, see if you can pick out the hit songs <laughs> uh, that are included in the overture, not all of which um, may be heard in the current production, which also features lots of added songs from other Rogers and Hart's shows, uh, but cut several that were in originally in Pal Joey.
0: Okay, so on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye.